This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. In today's challenging world, it's very easy to start feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed. If you're experiencing any of these feelings, BetterHelp is here for you. They offer licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. You can talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you're matched with a therapist in as little as 48 hours. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge at any time. Join the 3 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. That's BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. Merry Christmas, holiday lovers. What? Too soon? For me, it certainly isn't. November 1st has always been the official start of the Christmas season for me. One of the reasons I personally dive right into Christmas the second Halloween ends is because it keeps me from having to feel the depression caused by the lovely spooky season being over. I won't be putting up my decorations today, but I do already have this weekend reserved for the Halloween tearing down Christmas putting up fun. Come next week, my apartment will look like it went to sleep one night as a creepy gothic haunt and woke up the next morning looking like North Pole headquarters. But don't worry, I always stay true to my holidays after dark way of life by incorporating some non-traditional elements into my holiday decor. I'll post some examples on the podcast social media pages throughout the season. If you can't already tell, I'm very excited to have reached the most wonderful time of the year yet again. It feels extra special this year because it's my first Christmas since starting the podcast. Last year's holiday season was actually one of the inspirations that led me to start this show in the first place. I've listened to many fantastic Christmas podcasts over the years, and that, combined with my desire to have a fun, mental health-positive hobby, gave me the motivation to see if I could create a podcast myself. Throughout the season, I plan to cover the history of Christmas and our modern-day celebrations, explore strange Christmas traditions from around the world, uncover a cast of rather interesting Christmas-related characters, as well as a variety of other dark holiday elements. And no, I didn't forget about Thanksgiving. I will be releasing an episode in recognition of the Day of Thanks in the midst of our Christmas fun. Let's kick things off with the history of Christmas and find out exactly how this day made it through its often hotly debated history to become the magic it is today. The middle of winter has long been a time of celebration around the world. Centuries before the supposed arrival of a man called Jesus, early Europeans celebrated light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Many people rejoiced during the winter solstice when the worst of the winter was behind them and they could look forward to longer days and extended hours of sunlight. In Scandinavia, the Norse celebrated Yule from December 21st, the winter solstice, through January. 
In recognition of the return of the sun, fathers and sons would bring home large logs, which they would set on fire. The people would feast until the log burned out, which could take as many as 12 days. The end of December was a perfect time for celebration in most areas of Europe. At that time of year, most cattle were slaughtered so they would not have to be fed during the winter. For many, it was the only time of year when they had a supply of fresh meat. In addition, most wine and beer made during the year was finally fermented and ready for drinking. In Rome, where winters were not as harsh as those in the far north, Saturnalia, a holiday in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture, was celebrated. Beginning in the week leading up to the winter solstice and continuing for a full month, Saturnalia was a hedonistic time when food and drink were plentiful and the normal Roman social order was turned upside down. Businesses and schools were closed so that everyone could participate in the holiday's festivities. Also around the time of the winter solstice, Romans observed Juvenalia, a feast honoring the children of Rome. In addition, members of the upper classes often celebrated the birthday of Mithra, the god of the unconquerable sun, on December 25th. For some Romans, Mithra's birthday was the most sacred day of the year. In the early years of Christianity, Easter was the main holiday. The birth of Jesus wasn't celebrated. In the 4th century, church officials decided to institute the birth of Jesus as a holiday. However, the Bible doesn't mention a date for his birth, a fact Puritans later pointed out in order to deny the legitimacy of the celebration. Although some evidence suggests that his birth may have occurred in the spring, Pope Julius I chose December 25th. It is commonly believed that the church chose this date in an effort to adopt and absorb the traditions of the pagan Saturnalia festival. First called the Feast of the Nativity, the custom spread to Egypt by 432 and to England by the end of the 6th century. By holding Christmas at the same time as traditional winter solstice festivals, church leaders increased the chances that Christmas would be popularly embraced. By the Middle Ages, Christianity had, for the most part, replaced the pagan religion. On Christmas, believers attended church, then celebrated in a drunken, carnival-like atmosphere. Each year, a beggar or student would be crowned the Lord of Misrule, and eager celebrants played the part of his subjects. The poor would go to the houses of the rich and demand their best food and drink. If owners failed to comply, their visitors would most likely terrorize them with mischief. Christmas became the time of year when the upper classes could repay their real or imagined debt to society by entertaining less fortunate citizens. In the early 17th century, a wave of religious reform changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe. When Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to rid England of decadence and, as part of their effort, canceled Christmas. By popular demand, Charles II was restored to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. Pilgrims were even more orthodox in their Puritan beliefs than Cromwell. As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. 
From 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined five shillings. By contrast, in the Jamestown settlement, Captain John Smith reported that Christmas was enjoyed by all and passed without incident. After the American Revolution, English customs fell out of favor, including Christmas. In fact, Christmas wasn't declared a federal holiday until June 26, 1870. It wasn't until the 19th century that Americans really began to embrace Christmas. They changed it from a wild carnival holiday into a family-centered day of peace and nostalgia. However, during this time, unemployment was high and gang rioting by the disenchanted classes often occurred during the Christmas season. In 1828, the New York City Council instituted the city's first police force in response to a Christmas riot. This catalyzed certain members of the upper classes to begin to change the way Christmas was celebrated in America. Around this time, English author Charles Dickens created the classic holiday tale, A Christmas Carol. The story's message, the importance of charity and goodwill towards all humankind, struck a powerful chord in the United States and England and showed members of Victorian society the benefits of celebrating the holiday. Families were also becoming less disciplined and more sensitive to the emotional needs of children during the early 1800s. Christmas provided families with a day when they could give lavish attention and gifts to their children without appearing to spoil them. As Americans began to embrace Christmas as a perfect family holiday, old customs were unearthed. In the next 100 years, Americans built a Christmas tradition all their own that included pieces of many other customs, including decorating trees, sending holiday cards, and gift-giving. Eventually, the belief in jolly old St. Nicholas bringing Christmas gifts to well-behaved children was born. Ho, ho, ho! The legend of Santa Claus can be traced back hundreds of years to a monk named St. Nicholas. It is believed that Nicholas was born sometime around 280 AD. Much admired for his kindness, St. Nicholas became the subject of many legends. It is said that he gave away all of his inherited wealth and traveled the countryside helping the poor and sick. Over the course of many years, Nicholas's popularity spread, and he became known as the protector of children and sailors. His feast day is celebrated on the anniversary of his death, December 6th. By the Renaissance, St. Nicholas was the most popular saint in Europe. St. Nicholas made his first journey into American popular culture towards the end of the 18th century. In December 1773 and again in 1774, a New York newspaper reported that groups of Dutch families had gathered to honor the anniversary of his death. The name Santa Claus evolved from Nick's Dutch nickname, Sinterklaas. In 1804, John Pinterd, a member of the New York Historical Society, distributed woodcuts of St. Nicholas at the Society's annual meeting. The background of the engraving contains now-familiar Santa images, including stockings filled with toys and fruit hung over a fireplace. Gift-giving, mainly centered around children, has been an important part of the Christmas celebration since the holiday's rejuvenation in the early 19th century. 
Stores began to advertise Christmas shopping in 1820, and by the 1840s, newspapers were creating separate sections for holiday advertisements, which often featured images of the newly popular Santa Claus. In 1841, thousands of children visited a Philadelphia shop to see a life-size Santa Claus model. It was only a matter of time before stores began to attract children and their parents with the lure of a peek at a live Santa Claus. In the early 1890s, the Salvation Army needed money to pay for the free Christmas meals they provided to needy families. They began dressing up unemployed men in Santa Claus suits and sending them into the streets of New York to solicit donations. Those familiar Salvation Army Santas have been ringing bells on the street corners of American cities ever since. In the United States, Santa Claus is often depicted as flying from home to home on Christmas Eve to deliver toys to children. He flies on his magic sleigh led by his reindeer, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, and the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph. Santa enters each home through the chimney, which is why empty Christmas stockings are hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. But the world of Santa Claus and the tradition of giving toys to children has not been free from controversy. A man in New York City named John Duval Gluck popularized another bit of modern lore, writing to Santa Claus. In his book, The Santa Claus Man, which I have read and highly recommend, author Alex Palmer tells all about the man who was part Saint Nick and part sinner. It's impossible to say who wrote the first Santa letter, but it was almost certainly from the mythical saint, not to him. From the earliest conception of Santa Claus in the United States, parents used the voice of St. Nicholas as a means of providing advice and encouraging good behavior in their children. Soon enough, children started writing back, generally placing their letters on the fireplace where they believed smoke would transport the message to St. Nick. By the 1870s, scattered reports appeared of the receipt of Santa letters by local post offices. But with no actual fur-coated toymaker to receive his mail, each January, the department destroyed them. It was a depressing business. In the face of negative publicity, however, New York City's postmaster finally relented. Each year, for the entire month of December, any approved organization could answer Santa's mail. No one volunteered. Then, in 1913, just as the post office was about to give up, a man named John Duval Gluck stepped forward. He would be Santa Claus. It would later be revealed that he was also a con artist. A strange candidate for Santa Claus, Gluck had no children of his own. He was a bachelor, once divorced, and though a member of St. Mark's Episcopal Church, Gluck was not particularly religious. The oldest of five brothers, Gluck had lived for two years in Brooklyn before his family moved to Westfield, New Jersey. 
He described it as a happy home with few wants and where every holiday was a huge deal, especially Christmas, when kind gestures both within the family and toward less fortunate outsiders were a tradition. Gluck inherited his father's custom brokerage business, but at age 35, he was restless for fame and hungry to do something with his life. Gluck sensed he was destined for great things, to bring delight to the city, help his fellow New Yorkers, and garner himself some public esteem in the process. Santa might offer just the route. Gluck was a natural showboat, and after the post office gave its approvals and he started the Santa Claus Association, he proved adept at delighting the reporters who dropped by the headquarters in the back room of Henkel's Chop Shop on 36th Street. When Zoe Beckley, a reporter for the Evening Mail, arrived, Gluck spoke of how children wrote in asking for sleds or dolls. Several children even asked for coal. So cold and desperate were the letter writers that they would consider it a blessing, rather than a punishment, to receive coal in their stockings. Gluck boasted about the process he had devised. A team of volunteers would go through each letter, flagging any repeats from the same child. If the child describes starvation, homelessness, or abuse, the volunteer put it in a special stack, which was forwarded to the Public Charities Commission for further investigation. If the writer asked for excessive gifts or gave some other indication of not really needing Santa's help, it was set aside in an investigation stack. If they passed an inspection, Gluck estimated about 70% of them did, the letter was finally ready for a response. Association members didn't actually touch the gifts these kids would receive. Each approved letter was sent out to a potential donor, drawn from a list of names and addresses Gluck compiled from his own business, along with suggestions made by the association's directors and volunteers. Gluck revealed to Beckley something unmentioned to other reporters, a credential that made him almost cosmically qualified to play New York City's Santa Claus. He had been born on Christmas Day. The Santa Claus Association was an enormous hit. By December 24, 1913, the association had coordinated the delivery of gifts to 13,160 kids in the city. Two years later, that number had ballooned to 50,000 in 16,000 families. The papers were filled with stories of delighted kids receiving gifts in the tenements. The city's richest families were eager to give to the organization because they saw the results of their charity firsthand. The Santa Claus Association sent them specific letters, letting them deliver the gifts themselves if they wanted. The group moved first to donated space at the Hotel Astor, then to the Woolworth Building, then the tallest in the world. As the group's work wound down on Christmas Day in 1915, and the piles of letters in the office dwindled, suddenly the space began filling with reporters. Gluck stopped his volunteers and informed them he was going to make an announcement. He dropped his big news. The peculiar nature of our work calls for a building of our own. Gluck had commissioned architects George and Edward Blum to create the most unique building in America. The Santa Claus Building in Manhattan would be made of white marble with a massive arched portal, nearly 20 feet deep, as a front entrance. 
The facade would depict versions of Santa Claus from all around the world, each created by an artist native to that country. The ground floor would house the offices of the association. On the second floor would be a huge market where toys from around the world would be sold or given away. The proposed Santa Claus building will be a national monument, Gluck declared, a real-life Santa's workshop, as well as a place of international celebration of the Christmas spirit. Every detail seemed to have been carefully considered and provided to the press, except how to pay for the $300,000 building. But then, raising money was always Gluck's gift. He ran a series of fraudulent charities, often with the help of the astounding database of 76,000 New York donors, including Astors and Vanderbilts, that he put together through the Santa Claus Association. One of Gluck's most notorious associations was with the American Boy Scout organization. Newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst founded the scouting group in May 1910 as a challenge to Chicago publisher William Dixon Boyce, who had incorporated the Boy Scouts of America three months prior. The boys in both groups went on outdoor trips and volunteered in the community, but their practices differed in at least one significant way. Hearst scouts carried loaded guns. Partly because Hearst believed boys should cultivate skills with firearms, and also to help prepare members for eventual service in the military, rifles became standard accessories for American Boy Scout members. But after a 12-year-old American Boy Scout shot and killed a 9-year-old in the Bronx during a fight, membership plummeted. Gluck, who used scouts as volunteers at the Santa Claus Association, fought to keep the United States Boy Scouts alive, exaggerating its membership and the luminaries who backed it. He would attach the names of prominent politicians and businessmen as executive vice presidents without their knowledge. After a long court fight and dwindling finances, the United States Boy Scouts folded. Gluck retreated to his Santa Claus cave, but the Boy Scout debacle had attracted the attention of many authorities, including Bird Kohler, the city's public welfare commissioner. Unlike its first years when Gluck directed wealthy patrons to needy kids, the Santa Claus Association now asked for direct donations. In 1927, Kohler found that the group brought in $106,000, about $1.4 million today, but didn't detail its spending. Salaries kept increasing, and a $10,000 fund had simply vanished. The Santa Claus building was never built, but the group had still accepted donations for its construction. Gluck legitimately wanted to help kids, but he also craved the fame and fortune the Santa Claus Association provided him. Kohler brought his findings to the post office, which rescinded Gluck's contract. By Christmas, the letters coming into the office and the public support of the group had evaporated. Without the endorsement of the post office, the association lost its logistical ability to collect letters to Santa. But more importantly, it lost the city's faith. The letters to Santa on which Gluck prided himself were taken from him. His right to claim the title of Santa's secretary had been revoked, as the postman literally walked into his office and removed the letters delivered to him days prior. If Gluck had a legacy, it is that once he moved the children's wishes out of the dead letter office, 
it proved hard to send them back. For years, the post office continued to offer the letters on an informal basis, with occasional help from private charity groups. Then, in 1962, the New York City Post Office formalized the process of answering Santa letters. Today, hundreds of local groups handle the answering of letters across the United States under the umbrella of Operation Santa Claus. If you have any Christmas-related stories, trivia, or interesting facts you would like me to include in an episode this holiday season, feel free to send it to me. Email Kristen at HolidaysAfterDark.com, direct message at Holidays Podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or find us on Facebook. I would love to feature your story or fun fact on a future episode of Holidays After Dark. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss your dose of holiday darkness. A rate or review would also be greatly appreciated. Thank you to my sister Ashley for editing and producing the podcast. Today I will leave you with a quote from author Kevin Allen Milne. Christmas magic is silent. You don't hear it, you feel it. You know it. You believe it.